0: On October 2nd, 1959, the television show Twilight Zone was first aired, causing viewers of the show to join a journey that seemed surreal for the characters in each episode. Nine days later, Upton Bell would be placed into his own Twilight Zone because his father, Burt Bell, would end up passing away on October 11th right in front of him. And it happened in what could have easily been an episode of the Twilight Zone because he was watching his two former teams play on the same field where he led the Pennsylvania Quakers their only Rose Bowl game. And the big twist at the end of all this is that in a few days, Burt Bell would have been named the owner of the Eagles. Welcome to the Football History
1: Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the
0: gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. Great Scott. This time, as we step off our DeLorean, the date is October 11th, 1959, and we still have a passenger riding shotgun with us. His name is Upton Bell. The reason why we stopped at this time is because this is the day his father passed away, and like I said in the intro, It was basically a Twilight Zone episode that had happened to him that day, because we found out in the last episode that Burt Bell had plans to purchase the Philadelphia Eagles just a few days later, and retire as a commissioner, which probably would have led to Upton being an owner of the Eagles in the future. However, the deal fell through, and Upton was on his own, and he had some decisions to make. This is where we start off this part of the interview. But before we get there, I wanted to remind you this is part two of the Upton Bell interview. And if you have not listened to part one, then I highly suggest you go ahead and check that one out first. And you can get there through your podcast player or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com forward slash Upton Bell. And while you're at it, I ask that you please subscribe for free to this show by mashing that little subscribe button on your podcast player of choice. That way you get the hottest, freshest out the press episodes each and every week. But for now, let's go ahead and figure out what Upton did after his father passed away. (laughs) Upton Bell, he's gotta find his way on his own. What is he gonna do after the Eagles? Where did you go?
1: Well, I, I, I began that long trip and probably ten of the greatest years I spent. And that Carol Rosenblum, who owned the, the Colts, very controversial, was actually uh offering me I went to I went to meet with him in Atlantic City. He had a home there as well as Baltimore in, in New York. And I ironically My father talked him into buying, bringing the old Colts back to Baltimore. And Rosenblum was against it. And he said, listen, be the best investment you'll ever make. I'm only asking for $30,000. Of course, we know what it's worth now. So he bought the team. And my father said to him one time, you know, I'd like a piece of that for my kids. Well, of course, that never worked out. But Rosenblum, who was Joe Kennedy's great friend and business partner, I went to visit him in Atlantic City in, in 1960, and we watched the convention from L.A. when JFK was nominated and uh, became uh, the presidential candidate. And Rosenblum had been out there with Teddy Kennedy. And actually, Rosenblum, as I talk about the book, said, you know, the president, uh, well, JFK and Bobby Kennedy aren't the best politicians. He said the best politician is Teddy Kennedy. He said he's too young now. He said, but he's going to end up being the best politician. And so we had this long conversation. He said, listen, uh, in August, now remember they had won back-to-back championships, the sudden death game, which made pro football, 59, they win again. And he said, you go to training camp, uh, it's your last year of college, when you finish college next year, come back. And of course, again, people travel everywhere today. Kids go to Europe, they go everywhere. you got to remember, it's 1960. It's the first time really leaving home on my own. Even though I traveled all over the country with my father, you get in a car and you drive from Philadelphia to Baltimore and you think, you know what? I'll never be home again. And I never was. In fact, kind of the sad part of it is that as a family, after my father died that year, never again together as a family. So think about a kid, 22 years old, getting a car, driving down there, not knowing what his future is, and ending up going to the Colts training camp for the summer, which was a fabulous thing. I learned a lot. And then came back the following year, and of course, still I think, everybody talks about Brady, different time, I understand, but I still think United was the greatest quarterback I've ever seen. He and Brady would be my top two ones. But those 10 years there, Big Daddy Lipscomb, Art Donovan, uh, Gino Marchetti, who just died, Lenny Moore, still one of the greatest athletes I've ever seen. These were the legendary Colt teams in a town where time had stopped still. That it was Middle America. It was uh, everything was around the Colts. All life revolved around it. The players in those days, they played, but they also went to work. They played in the game on Sunday. Most of all of them had jobs. And so they were part of, of the fabric of Baltimore. Blue collar, in love with their team, and uh, they loved their players because Unitas and Marquette, a lot of them, they were dock wallopers. They worked on the docks. They worked in the steel mills. This is you know, one of the greatest football teams of all time. You ain't getting anybody, you're not going to get any Rob Gronkowski to get out and work with the Steelworkers. But that was that bond, that love uh, that you'll never see again. And so that a young boy who grew into being a uh, a man who, and eventually ran the NFL draft, I think I was the youngest person in history, to run the Colts draft under Don Shula, who then went on to become one of the greatest coaches in history. But that 10 years, which is in the book, and there, there's tragedy in there, too. There's the death of the, of the president. There's the tragic death of Big Daddy Lipscomb, who was one of the best athletes I've ever seen. He was so good, he played with the Harlem Globetrotters in the offseason. Six foot four, six five, two hundred ninety five. 295, so he could have played today easily. Um, just all these amazing characters uh, who happen to be great football players. A rougher game. A harder time, uh, the players today are bigger, quicker, stronger, faster. I'm not sure that they're better than what I saw because there weren't 32 teams. So every week you played the Packers, you played the Lions, you played the Cleveland Browns, Jimmy Browns. You played teams that were really good every week. You didn't get the stiffs that you have that the Patriots play in their their own conference. Uh, so it was a harder game. People you know, really got hit. On every play. The cornerbacks, everybody. But again, that that town, that team, those players, I guess the closest you could come to it, if uh, Arnie, if you've seen it, and I recommend it to all people, if you want to know Baltimore, see the movie Diner, which was, was made by a young director who used to come to cold practices. And Diner's all about the dedication and love of the Colts Around these people who grew up and went to the diner that I used to go to, the Phelps Point Diner, two or three o'clock in the morning. Again, I say it's on Turner Classic Movies. Occasionally, see or rent or go on YouTube and see Diner, and and that will tell you the story of the Baltimore I grew up in.
0: Yeah, we'll have to take a look at that, and I'll even see if I can't put a link of that on the show notes too as well. Um, Totally different world. Um, I've told you before. I'm a young dude compared to you, and uh, I have never lived in a time where the NFL players have dealt with basically what it was like before. Let's call it before the '70s. I I know no NFL before the '90s, really. So it's unfair for me to compare any generation that I've grown up to to any generation in the past.
1: Well, and, and you know what, Arnie, and it's hard. And I tell people when when in my book I have unanimous you know, and Brady as the two best. I said, in two different eras, I said, United have a field day today because uh, basically the defense is penalized all the time. I said, conversely, Brady would have a hard time then, even though he's big, 6'5". I said, but Brady isn't hit on every play. United got hit in every play. United was a cripple at the end of his life. Total cripple from the beating he took. So you're right, it was, was different. But again, remember, and I talk about this in the book, Gino Marchetti, who just died, he would have been great in any era. He, at the age of 17, fought the Battle of the Bulge. Art Donovan fought the Battle of the Midway. These are guys who came back from the Second World War and knew what death was like. And I think that besides their own abilities, if you're in something and you see people die, and you see your friends die, and you've got to kill people, a uh, concrete Charlie Bidnarek, Chuck Bidnarek of the Eagles. At the age of 17, he was a bomber, flew in the back of, of those B-29 bombers over Germany. At the age of 17, he was a tail gunner. So, you know, they faced death. They knew what it was. Are the players better today? Sure. I'm not sure the game's better, but the players are better. Technically and otherwise, the diets and but think about being around those people. I was really around them. Uh, sure, they can act like boys at times, but these were people that faced, the worst thing we could all face is death. So I have a respect for them, uh, regardless of whether they were as good as the players today are there. I have respect for them because they saw the reality of life they came back and made another life for themselves to become the greatest of their generation. There, There is a reason why Tom Brokaw had that best-selling book, The Greatest Generation. Now, I think every generation. I think the kids that go to war today are as great as the kids that did the 30s, 40s, whatever it is. But there is something about those people that will always stick in my mind. No celebrations after you score a touchdown. The old... The old Bill Parcells' uh, routine telling his players in in the early 2000s, when you score a touchdown, act like you've been there. I mean, you tackle somebody today and they act like it's an orgasm. (laughs) I'm saying, Jesus, all he did is tackle somebody. If you were to do that, even back in Steve Grogan's era, the 90s, if you were to do that, the player would walk over and say, you do that again and I'll put your lights out. I mean, it's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, and speaking of act like you've been there, you're an individual that has been there around the NFL for so long. And with the Colts organization, going from, what was it, water boy, towel boy, equipment boy, all the way to director of player personnel? How did that story go?
1: Well, again, you have to be at the right place at the right time. I was lucky. I started out in 1963. Uh, I went in and said, you know what? I know a lot about football. I was working in a ticket office. So, uh, if if you need a scout, let me know. So they decided you'd be in the scouting department because the scouting departments weren't big then. And they sent me out in the road. They said, here are a lot of brochures. Here are the schools you need to go to. And so I started, the, the, and I'm probably going to look at doing a second book somewhere along the line. Just how I traveled throughout America in the early 60s all the way through you know, to, to the middle 70s, and so that's where I started out, and and I saw everything from, you know, being near the bridge in Selma the day that Martin Luther King and and uh, uh, many African Americans were beaten and gassed on the famous bridge in Selma. I had many cases where people threatened to kill me uh, because I looked like this young white kid from the north who was maybe coming, in their opinion, To the South to register African Americans to vote. Very dangerous time. But I saw it all. But the break I got in 1964 in San Francisco because we were on the road. And uh, my boss, the personnel director, had a heart attack. And uh, Shula turned to me. It was his second year. And he said, Kid, you ready to take over? I said, I'm ready. And uh, my first draft. I convinced him to take Mike Curtis from Duke, who was actually running back. I said he'll be a great linebacker someday, and I believe that he belongs in the Hall of Fame. And my second pick was Ralph Neely, who ended up going to Dallas because we couldn't sign him because of the war between the two leagues. I then drafted Al Atkinson, who played against us in the Jets' Super Bowl game that we blew. Uh, Marty Schartenheimer went on to become a great— My first six draft choices all played in the NFL— and, uh, and one of them belongs in the Hall of Fame. So I got lucky. And then a year later, I was in Dallas for spring practice. And I got a call from Baltimore. and said that the, your personnel director, your boss, just dropped dead. Came back to Baltimore. Went in and told Shul I know. I'm just a kid. But, uh, and, I, and I called the owner, Rose Bloom. And I said, give me a chance. If I'm no good, fire me. But give me a chance. And I talked them both into it, and the rest is history.
0: And just to remind the listeners, Rosenblum, he was the owner of the Colts at the time, right?
1: Somebody who was a brilliant guy. You know, he played football, Penny was, but his biggest problem was, you, you know, we sent more general managers and more personnel people on from the Colts than any other team in history, including Dallas. George Young became general manager of the New York Giants. I became a general manager of the New England Patriots. Harry Humes became a general manager of the New Orleans Saints. Ernie, of course, he became a general manager of the Browns and the New York football Giants. Uh, we had Dick Szymanski also. We had five or six people go right from that organization that I was in right to becoming general managers, and then other ones to personnel directors. Rosenblum's biggest problem, which you read in the book, is he liked to gamble. And uh, although they never caught him, uh, there's always been suspicions about it. And I wonder if my father had lived, whether he would have had to banish him from the league. But uh, you look at Rosenblum and you look at what's going on with Bob Kraft now, and you say to yourself, uh, you know, because I'm sure they want him to be in the Hall of Fame eventually, who belongs in the Hall of Fame? There's so many things going on here. but. Rosenblum is a real character. You read about him in the book. Whether he gambled, but he was a Howard Hughes type of character. There are a lot of characters in this book. I mean, there's, there's a, another character, Sammy Goldstein, who was a friend of Sinatra's. I met Sinatra in Baltimore. And Sammy Goldstein, in those days, everybody could hang out. Sammy Goldstein, I'm, I'm sure, was a gangster. Uh, and then I had another person who... Pretended like he was going to buy into the Charlotte Hornets. And he found out that he was under an assumed name, stole a jet, flew to Charlotte. Said he was going to give me a check for $100,000 to save the team. And I found out later that he was in the witness protection program. And that, that he was talked off the Verrazano Bridge in New York because he was going to commit suicide because he didn't want to be knocked off by the mafia. So there are plenty of great stories in the book for people.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's no way we can cover everything in this podcast episode. No. The book definitely is going to be recommended 100%, and I love reading through it. I couldn't put it down. And uh, again, we will be pushing that forward on to everybody out there in the show notes with some links. Um, Speaking of the book, in the book, in the Hall of Fame, you mentioned Eddie Kotal, and I might be pronouncing that wrong, the first full-time scout. No,
1: you got it right. Now, I'll tell you something, Arnie, and I'm glad you brought up his name, because I've tried to get the attention of the, of the Hall of Fame and saying the one person that belongs in over everybody was the person who really invented scouting, and that's Eddie Cotell of the Rams, who was the first person to go out on the road in the 40s, kept track of people, and actually was one of the first to scout African Americans at Grambling. He belongs in there, but these people... You know, they don't know, they're going to vote on the top 100 players of this year for the 100th anniversary. And I called one of one of my friends, Ernie, of and I said, I know more than any of those people on that committee, and none of them have seen the great players from the 60s back. I said, They're, they're going to vote on them? I said, Are you kidding? So I've been trying to get Eddie Cotel in because I think he belongs in there. He was the original guy, he was the one that made, discovered all the great players with the Rams. Rams had so many good players, they traded half of them away. Like Big Daddy Lipscomb. He found him at Pendleton, um, a Marine base in Pendleton, California. Big Daddy Lipscomb. No college, nothing. And if he'd lived long enough, he would have been in the football Fame. But he definitely belongs in there. And every time I tell them, they don't pay any attention.
0: Is uh, Eddie Cotel still alive? No, God, he died years ago. Oh, okay. Um, So you mentioned um, Ernie Acorsi, and we've talked about other GMs that have gone on from the Colts organization, but we didn't really talk about Super Bowl three, and yeah, let's call it a letdown if you want, but I'm sure it was a little bit more than that as far as your team went.
1: Well, it's a great chapter uh, because it takes, I, I don't know, it's 20, 30 pages. Or not. It's really the biggest upset in pro football history, and it made... In the end, even though we lost, it made uh, both leagues equal because we were 18-point favorite. And the great line by Jimmy Orr, our great receivers, said about Earl Morrow, who had taken over for Unitas when he got hurt, said, I hope Earl doesn't wake up today. Uh, and he did wake up. He had a bad day and we blew. Uh, and it wasn't Joe Namath that won that Super Bowl. It was Matt Snow in the running game. why I picked Lee Bubank as one of the great coaches in history, although his record would not you know, recommend him for that. He had the two greatest games in history, the sudden death game in New York, that he won the Colts, and the upset of us after he got fired by Kyle Rosenblum uh, when the Jets beat us. But we go through page by page how that game happened and what happened to the league after that.
0: Yeah, that was a very interesting chapter for me to read as well. I've, again, being from a younger, newer generation, in my mind, it was the Joe Namath game until I read the book and saw what really happened or, you know, was able to understand the dynamic of Weeb Ubank I had no idea Don Shula, Weeb Ubank and the relationship that was there between the two coaches of Super Bowl three, and Just interesting for someone like me to be able to dive deep into that topic. Well,
1: for anybody, it's a diagram of a game that, that we should have won very easily but lost for certain key reasons. And had nothing to do in in many ways with Joe Namath, except Namath gave them the courage by saying all of the stuff before the game will kill him and all this other stuff. And I I guess, you know, got got his team to believe in him. But again, it's a luck of life. I mean, we have four different opportunities in the first half to score and blow the game open. And fumbles and balls going in the air and Earl Marle missing a wide open Jimmy Orr in the end zone. All of that, that crazy stuff. And even that whole day was crazy. Yeah. Nixon and Agnew had won, and Agnew was a great friend of the team, flew down on our plane, and Agnew comes in to me before the game, and he said, Nixon wants to uh, give Don Shula the first play. I said, are you kidding me? I said, I I'd like win go and tell Shula that. Shula will take my head off. And Joe Kennedy came to the game. And Teddy came to the game because they were close with Rosenblum. It was going to be a big party, a big celebration. It turned out to be the biggest upset in history.
0: Yeah, and you also mentioned how even though it was premature, Rosenblum had invited Weeb Eubanks to the after party before the game even started. How did that go?
1: Yep. Uh, No, Weeb didn't show up. (laughs) But the Kennedys did and, and other people did. Marcel did, but it was an embarrassment for the NFL, and it was an embarrassment for Rosenblum, and because we lost, that was how Schuler ended up in Miami, because uh, Rosenblum never forgave Shula for losing that game and embarrassing him, and, and Shula never was the same with Rosenblum. If that hadn't happened, uh, Shula would have remained the rest of his life in Baltimore. But that's, again, what this book says, Arnie, and, and, and whether it's sports or not, You'll be at the right place at the right time. Anything can happen in your life. Uh, some of the dumbest things you think happen end up costing you a lot. So that's what happened. One game finished Rosenblum and Shula's relationship, and Shula ended up going to Baltimore.
0: Yeah, and that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you is alternate reality. What do you think would have happened to the league? because of the AFL-NFL merger if the Jets had lost that game and the Colts won it beyond just Shula becoming the coach and staying the coach at the Colts?
1: Well, I think I think it would have been fine. I might have delayed another year because you forget the next year Kansas City beat Minnesota. That was the last year before the total merger. So so eventually it would have worked out. It's just that that game everybody remembers because we are such overwhelming favorites.
0: Yeah, it's uh, kind of like when the for me, thinking modern time, the Eagles, Nick Foles beating the Patriots, even though it didn't turn out, morale didn't win that time. Do you think Nick Foles could be like the modern day Eddie Morrell? Well,
1: it could be. I think Foles had a great day, but I think for one of the few times that Belichick blew it, uh, he didn't play his best defensive back. But nobody will ever find out what really happened or why. And and I think uh, the other thing is remember our defense Patriots were really bad. I wasn't surprised was I was, you know, they, Brady threw for 501 yards and they still lost.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, going into it, they were maybe favored heavily because of being the Patriots, but on paper, and if you look at the uh, the roster personnel and things like that, it was probably a lot more close than really what it was.
1: It was. It absolutely was. And the key play, like the key play, in the 68 game, Marl misses on the flea flicker. Misses Jimmy Orr waving his hands in the end zone. He completes the pass, which should have been easily. Uh, we don't want to blow them out. If uh, Vic Foles and that play just before halftime, where the they're da- they're down there and they go for it, and they have the reverse and fool them, and, and, uh, and they score the touchdown just before halftime, I, th- I said, that's the game.
0: Oh, yeah, if that didn't momentum go forward into it, then things could have totally went the other way. But speaking of the other way, Super Bowl five, they did finally get that, that victory, but it wasn't as sweet as it could have been, was it?
1: No, and most of our players will say, even to this day, the ones who are still alive, that we never got over losing that uh, that Super Bowl three, And in Super Bowl five, it was called the Blooper Bowl we won the game because we fumbled less than Dallas did, you know, and, and won on a field goal by Jim O'Brien, and uh, Mike Curtis made the interception on a deflected ball. But again, it, it no, it's never the same when you're... Remember, we only lost one game. We could have been unbeaten. We might have been the only unbeaten team in history. Forget the Patriots. In 2007, when they lost the Super Bowl, if we hadn't put Johnny Ice back in the third or fourth game of the year against Cleveland, which we beat 34 to nothing in the championship game, if not, we would have been going into the Super Bowl. And if if we had won the Super Bowl, we would have been the first modern team. Now, Shula did it back in in 1972, but again. There, we're we're back to what do we always keep coming back to in the conversation? The big ifs of life.
0: Yeah, it's just uh, very interesting how we always talk about soccer ball, basketball, baseball. For the most part, you kind of know where they're going to bounce. But when that football's in the air, man, we don't know what's going to happen. And just in the blink of an eye. And I'm going to let you go ahead and say what your father quoted as far as what can happen on a Sunday.
1: I wish at the time, although my brother finally protected it legally, I wish uh, that, uh, and most people didn't know it until my father's life story came out seven or eight years ago. Bert Bell was the one that said, on any given Sunday, gave the quote, I think, to a writer for the Philadelphia Bulletin in 1954-55. He said, on any given Sunday, Any team can beat any other team. It is said, I think, almost every day, particularly during the football season, at 10, 20, 30 times a day. And that was his famous quote, that people still to this day either get the wrong person. I remember Peter King, Sports Illustrated, called me about it. And I said, Peter, he thought Roselle said it. Peter, no, I said it was Burt Bell. He said, I'm sorry, I'll correct it. But that was the title of my father's life story, his book that came out about seven years ago. So he just, you know, he had that feel for it. And remember, he made up the schedules, unlike today. And he always made sure and again, that was one of his ideas. Schedule the week against the week and the strong against the strong through the first six or seven games of the season. Keep everybody in the race.
0: And the purpose of that is so we have parity in the league. So then at the end of the, or halfway through the season, it's not like a runaway. Is that what the deal was there?
1: Right. And uh, yeah, and particularly in those days, you had to. We wanted to make sure everybody was able to be equal and make money. So it was, you know, one of the things that he had, one of the hallmarks that he had. And that's, that's his, one of his many famous quotes.
0: Well, from a personal perspective, uh, going back to the Patriots and, and then on any given Sunday, I am a modern day Detroit Lions fan who has never seen anything happen and I just want them to win one Super Bowl for my grandpa. That's all I ask before he passes away. You think that Patricia has any chance in Bob Quinn over there?
1: I doubt it. I doubt it. I saw the great Lions teams and they were all in the fifties. And saw so, um, you know, when well they had Buddy Parker and Bobby Lane and Dok Walker. And even through Alex Karras into the sixties, and uh, you know they they had some great teams, uh, but then it just has never ever worked out. And, you know, Detroit was one of the great, still is one of the great pro football towns in America, but uh, the you know the Martha Fly- Firestone still alive, Bill Ford's wife, and uh, I I don't know. Um, remember the. Lines were great before we got into all this parody. And now, you know, anybody can win, as Bert Bell said, on any given Sunday. Yeah, but because I can remember the great days and I I was there for championship games and 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 knew many of your greatest players. But we'll see. I, I I am doubt.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, and as as most do, I tell you what I I drink the uh the blue Kool Aid every off season, and then I get disappointed. Normally around halfway through it goes, but I hold out hope every time, and one of these days we're gonna get it.
1: <laughs> I hope you're right. It's a great place. By the way, I want to tell the people to read uh, Bob Ryan, who's on the back of my book. A great writer on the NBA. Recommended it too. Read the epilogue. I did, wrote the epilogue myself goes about thirty-five pages and it's all the things I couldn't get in the book, but there's fascinating stories in there, including my friend who he George Raveling, who went on to coach Southern Cal and teams out on the West Coast, basketball player. He and I played in the Summer League like together in Philadelphia. And he's the one that went down for well, he was a college student at Villanova, went down for the Martin Luther King I speech in Washington, the Washington Monument. And uh, at the end of the speech, he was standing behind King and he said to King, can I have the speech? And King handed him the original speech. He now has it hidden in a bank somewhere and people have offered him millions of dollars for the speech. So there are a lot of interesting things. Read the epilogue when you get the book.
0: Oh, yes, for sure. I recommend that to everybody out there. Let's just say the entire book is like a marathon of golden knowledge nuggets but then you think you're at the end and it's awesome but you get to the epilogue and it's one of those deals where it's you can't put it down to even go to the restroom it's just an incredible wealth of interesting and facts and things like that in the back there speaking of one of them i i saw in the book that you had a chance to meet Muhammad ali at the after party for super bowl five did you really talk to him that much or was it more of a passing by (laughs) oh you know it You're going to have to wait until next week to hear what Upton has to say about Muhammad Ali. And once again, you sure know that he did drop those doggone golden knowledge nuggets that I keep talking about. Going into stories about the Colts and what they meant to the city of Baltimore. Unlike anything I personally have ever heard. A different time, a different era, a different kind of professional football player. And I included an Amazon link to Upton's book, Present at the Creation, on his dedicated page on the site. To check his book out and learn more about Upton Bell, you can head to thefootballhistorydude.com forward slash Upton Bell. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com forward slash Upton Bell. Now next week, we are going to finish Upton Bell's story, getting an overview of what he did after working with the great Johnny Unitas and Don Shula. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude.
1: Make sure you're the first to get the next episode. Please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.